Hello, 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 and welcome to this very special edition of the weekly watch list. I'm flying solo. My name's Sean Peterbutch. I'm here to give something a go, to be brutally honest. So thank you all for listening in. I've obviously correctly labelled this episode, so it's not a lucky dip surprise of any sort, but um, I thought I'd sort of try my hand and have a little bit of a go uh, at reviewing or slash discussing, unpacking, decompressing um, James Bond, No Time to Die. Uh, obviously, film and, and the like is something I'm pretty passionate about and interested in, as we all are. And in light of there being a new you know, James Bond film, um, you know, a series that's pretty close to my heart and one that I've enjoyed for such a long period of time, I thought, I'll have a crack maybe at uh, talking about it and seeing how it all goes. So um, just a forewarning, I might dip in and out of spoilers here and there to discuss the movie. Um, sometimes that'll just be the easiest way to you know best convey how I made sense of it and what I've liked about it and and the like. So please do bear that in mind if you want to be completely spoiler-free. It's probably best to avoid this until after you've seen the movie. I will try to not give too much away and and say too much um, because there are plenty of twists and turns in this particular movie that I think play best and work best um, if you allow them to sort of hit you in the cinema with knowledge beforehand. So um, just in terms of, I suppose, setting the scene, <coughs> as I mentioned off the top there, you know, of all the advances in cinema and we've seen so many um, over even the, the very recent past, of all the trends and the changes in taste and all the new properties we get and IPs that come and go, you know, the release of a new James Bond film remains an event, um, you know, but for maybe something like Star Wars, which has been going, you know, since 1977, such a long-running uh, franchise, um, it survived so many iterations and visions and um, the fact that it's still going strong coming up to its uh, 60th anniversary uh, is testament, I suppose, to the you know, the landmark achievement in storytelling that it's been and um, the reason that it, that it resonates, however infrequently or however well, um, as each passing era and decade goes by, um, makes for fascinating viewing, if nothing else. So uh, I suppose we'll just set the scene basically by briefly going over the really unusual journey that the film had um, to its cinema release, belatedly and finally for us uh, on the 11th of November um, for the UK. It was late, late September. Obviously in the US it was the first week of October, so we're a little bit behind, but um, it is finally released now in our market. I think it just needs a bit of context, and being the 25th entry, not that that number means too much once you get to that, but 25, it's a nice round number, um, originally slated for its release in the first quarter of 2020. It was the first high-profile casualty of the global pandemic. Um, it was pushed back to later in 2020. That was obviously not a go. I didn't get off the ground. It was pushed back again uh, and has finally been released, as I said, today in Australia <coughs> and then in the last sort of four to six weeks in the Asia, uh, other major markets around the world. Adding to the intrigue was actually um, the fact that Spectre, which was released in 2015 and was the last James Bond film was the fourth and final James Bond film that was distributed by Sony. That deal lapsed in between, obviously, Spectre and now No Time to Die, meaning that Eon Productions and MGM had to find a partner to distribute the film. Um, a bidding war won and uh, was run and won, sorry, by Universal, but only for one film. And the curious part of that, or the footnote to that, I should say, is that since... MGM and Eon have been bought out by Amazon, meaning that the world of James Bond, and that's important to note, it's the world of James Bond, it's, it's not the character, could be set for a future 
on their streaming platform. They have effectively bought, as they did with Lord of the Rings, they're doing a version of that, which will um, which will be out. I think it's I don't think it's next year. I think it might be the year after. But they bought up James Bond with the purpose, obviously, of AES making movies, and that will that will concern the character of James Bond. But interestingly, the world itself of MI6 and the supporting characters and the like. Well, they can have some fun in that sandbox and do whatever they want to to sort of bring that to life. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. Uh, behind the camera, Oscar-winning director Danny Boyle was originally slated to direct and uh, and work on the script. Um, he ultimately fell out of the role amid rumours of creative differences with the producers and the film star, Daniel Craig, of course. And obviously Daniel Craig had been pretty vocal about his own frustrations and fatigue with the role um, during Spectre's press album tour, which was sort of confronting, I suppose, when you're trying to sell this globe-trotting, iconic action star's latest adventure and you're making claims like you'd rather slit your wrists than come back and do the role. So some interesting things for it to contend with in between instalments and then obviously adding to the um, adding to the, the whole soap opera, I suppose, was the fact that everyone was crystal clear that this was to be Daniel Craig's last outing. So he was to put on the size too small tucks I think we can all um, admit with Daniel he probably can go up a size in his Tom Ford suit but the the point being that um, everyone went into this film totally across the fact this was the last one the last dance that's it for him in this role this is a swan song a farewell a see you later so hardly smooth sailing um, certainly not the preparation you necessarily want for um, what is in Eon and MGM's case, basically their meal ticket these days, and in the case of a Universal who have won, you know, the bidding rights for one standalone film, what's probably going to be your biggest movie of the year. So, some interesting political stuff behind the scenes there. We'll kick off just a basic chat, just around the plot, I suppose, and, and once again, we won't give away too much uh, there, because the fun of it is watching that unfold when you watch the movie. Um, effectively, uh, a chemically engineered virus called Heracles is stolen by the nefarious Spectre, uh, designed by MI6. Its creation was authorised by M, played by Ray Fiennes. Uh, and the nature of the virus is that it can be coded to target a person or a people's DNA. Uh, there's obviously a wrinkle in the plan, as it always comes to pass in these films. Spectre steal the virus, um, and their plans to do use it or turn it against James Bond are co-opted by the agents who are loyal to Rami Malek's mysterious character, Safin. Uh, Safin instead decides to do something a bit different and break ranks and uh, throw the whole plot on its head. Um, in typical fashion, that's only the start of what uh, Safin's got planned and the scope of his threat becomes clear. It's up to Bond and his remaining allies to figure out what the plans are, what's happening next and why they involve those closest to 007. So a bit of fun, high concept, silly James Bond is always good James Bond when the, the doomsday threat is a bit out there. Um, the virus thing is a bit tugs at collar, ugh, obviously given what we've been through, but uh, by the same token, it's uh, it's very effective and I think it's a pretty fun, silly, over-the-top James Bond plot, which um, sometimes people get a bit hard up about, but ultimately you have to give yourself and suspend disbelief and be prepared to accept some of those sillier things um, to really enjoy most of these movies. Um, did I like the movie? Yes. Yes, a lot. It's a globetrotting, action-packed uh, adventure in the vein of Bond's old and new, so it's a bit of old-school sort of 60s and 70s globetrotting, which is always fun. James Bond films have always been a quasi-travel log and, and trying to come up with new and exotic places for them to go to. 
is always a challenge. In this one, they come up with a couple of really fantastic locations that add a lot of colour and flavour to the story being told, which is excellent. Um, but the fact that I enjoyed it so much, to be honest, was a surprise. You know, Not that I liked it as such, but I always want to like a James Bond film. I always want to go in and be blown away and leave completely satisfied. I think it's that I liked it so much, given my sort of long-held position on contemporary James Bond. And I suppose in the interest of fairness, um, being a big fan, we were in lockdown when this was initially released around the world and without knowing when we were going to be out of lockdown, when I'd be able to see the film, when it might be released here, I did go ahead and read the synopsis and read the report of how the film plays out. And to be a lot of the beats sort of detailed in these plot um, synopsises did concern me as a fan of the property. They were challenging to the established rhythms and formula and mythos of the property and whilst new ideas are certainly welcome and fresh approaches should always be encouraged whether you're making a Star Wars film, a Batman film, a James Bond movie, there is always a line that you can cross and you kind of want to be hard up against the line without polarising too many people um, because that just creates problems that the next director has to solve, the property has to kind of wade its way out of uh, and it can be pretty chastening for the people involved. So just again, to use that word again, in terms of context, you know, my relationship with modern James Bond as a fan of the property for so long, you know, I reasoned that having read some of these challenging things and having read some of these ideas that sort of not put me on the back foot but kind of raised some eyebrows and gave me pause, I reasoned that my enjoyment of the film would be dictated by largely how my expectations around, you know, fidelity to the source material um, I suppose what I'm trying to say, the fidelity of the source material will dictate how much you enjoy the movie. How much anything that strays from that bothers anybody, you know, hinges on your ability to take each instalment on its merits, each actor who plays the role, for better or worse, on their merits. Because Bond is always a, a product of his time. He's always a product of his era, each individual Bond movie, Bond actor. They always inhabit, you know, a bit of the zeitgeist in that way. And whether they're setting the agenda and they're being the one that others will copy, or they're the ones doing the copying, which they've done a bit too much of in, in the latter years, you know, they, they always had this feeling of being silly, over-the-top, quirky B blockbusters. What has complicated that of late is that they've never actually been better made. So you think about the Craig Bonds, even going back to the Brosnan ones, there was a sort of a cheap quirkiness slapping it all together with spit and sticky tape and just hoping it works. Whereas in these ones, like they're legitimately well-made, big-budget blockbusters. And that's kind of not what they used to be. So you could forgive those higher-concept, sillier ideas because the film wasn't taking itself too seriously. They were being made on the fly by the seat of their pants. Whereas now, that's not really the case. What that creates, I suppose, is a level of expectation that's maybe a bit unfair on those films. And in that intervening time, they've kind of been overtaken in a, in a few different ways by Christopher McQuarrie's Mission Impossible films, which have kind of taken that Bond formula and, and probably done it better, to be honest, certainly more consistently. And they're using the overarching um, multi-film sort of uh, character arc and plot arc that Daniel Craig's Bond films have um, taken on board and, in fairness to them, taken on board before McQuarrie and MI started doing it. But by the same token, it just... It just, once again, is a challenge to the way people watch, you know, Bond films in the past. You know, every five to ten years or ten to fifteen years, 
the property seems to have a crisis of confidence and try to become something that it thinks the audience wants it to be when what it's been all along is, is probably good enough if they just keep just tweaking it, making sure it's not an old hat, keep... You know, you don't have to change things wholesale, which I think they do a little bit too often. And that's been my frustration with large swathes of Craig's era as James Bond because it's the characterization that's important, not the five-film overarching storyline and plot beats. That's fine. And when executed, they're really rewarding and good to watch. And for those that have had issues with, with that, you know, continuity, I suppose that's because for the most part, James Bond films have never had any of that. Any continuity film to film is pretty loosely observed, let alone actor to actor. Usually it's a nod or a wink to the camera that, oh, you remember this? Yeah, remember that? Remember this shout-out? And we all go, oh, yeah, oh, that's from such and such, or that's a nod to this. And I think I think evolving it and doing something a bit different is fine, you know, so long as, you know, what you try to do is, is, is interesting. And I'm really pleased to say that as this film kind of comes full circle it all ties together in in a much better, more rewarding, you know, more satisfying way than I perhaps envisaged it might. So uh, that was really, really good. But just you know, lastly on the on the Craig stuff and the stuff that was a challenge to me, you know, during his time in the character Edgar Wright, who, who's obviously a fantastic director in his own right, Englishman. English English people have usually got a pretty good opinion or, or a pretty um, pretty good or worthwhile opinion to listen to regarding James Bond. Um, he made the point that James Bond is either milk chocolate or dark chocolate. And his rationale was that, you know, Craig is dark chocolate, he's bitter and he's gritty, he's a bit darker, um, whereas something like a Roger Moore is milk chocolate. And you sort of can't do back-to-back. You can't do milk chocolate, milk chocolate, or dark chocolate, dark chocolate. You kind of have to oscillate because that's the point of difference actor to actor. So we've done dark chocolate. So his point was the next one's probably got to be milk chocolate which is where the change and which is where people's, oh, that's different, I like that, that's fresh, will come from. So he said that a couple of weeks ago and he, he kind of touched on um, potentially having a pitch of his own for the character, which is, um, yeah, a bit of a watch this space, to be honest. But it should be, should be interesting to see if that ever sees the light of day or if he ever elaborates on how he sees the character because he's a pretty creative guy. So uh, it'd be fun, if nothing else, to kind of know how he sees James Bond. When Casino Royale came out, he was deliberately posited as young and fresh. And then they decided that was boring in that same movie and had him retire. And he retired in the next one, and he retired in the next one, then he retired at the end of uh, Skyfire, um, Spectre. And he's sort of going, that doesn't work. And it doesn't really work until you get to this film, where they do the same thing, but because it's film five and it's the last film and he's a bit more weathered and he's a bit more, you know, travelled, they've earned the right to roll that plot point out based on the, just the time frame. You know, if you're going to make these characters retire, if you're going to make him throw down arms, you have to earn it. The Bond of Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace and Skyfall and Spectre hadn't really earned it. Maybe by the end of Spectre, but he hadn't earned that, I'm stepping out of the game, you know. And I think if you, you think about Batman in The Dark Knight Rises, similarly... You know, at the end of the Dark Knight, he retires, and and you can make the argument that it's premature, and the beat doesn't really serve the character because he's only had two movies. He's only been Batman for such a short period of time. If what happened to him happened to him, if nothing, nothing else, he'd probably get more unhinged. He'd probably double down and go out and still be Batman. He hadn't earned that right to step away just yet. 
Whereas finally, I think James Bond earns the arc, earns the beat they've been you know, kind of shoving down our throats, to be honest, for about four movies. So um, that that was, I think, a, a good sort of moment finally that, that that works for them. They've been trying to do it for a bit too long. And at the moment, in this given film, they just they get it right because they earn it, which is great. Um, what I like about the movie, um, we'll go through some things that I, that I really appreciated and I thought really worked. Uh, the pacing is one, the film goes for 163 minutes, which is by far the longest-running James Bond, but it is paced superbly. That is really hard to accomplish on a film that runs just under three hours. It is, it's so difficult to have everything hit the note you need it to, have the film cover the exposition it needs to, intersperse the action beats where you need them, the character beats where you need them, and to have the film not drag. You know, it is a challenge. The, the best filmmakers in the world really struggle with keeping things tight for that long. Um, so to, to do it here, Carrie Fukunaga, the director, has uh, done an outstanding job. Daniel Craig. And, look, I was happy to be rid of him, to be honest, after Spectre as the character. It wasn't just the whinging, but I just thought his portrayal of the role had for too long ignored what is great about James Bond. I thought that they dispensed with the subtlety and the class that the character needed. Um but in this particular outing, perhaps spurred by the knowledge it was his last, he actually looks the right type of comfortable. He isn't jaded by the role. Maybe he's just embraced that it's his last go-around. And I think it's it's probably his best performance as James Bond. You know, and to his credit, like most Bond actors don't get to go out on much of a high. You know, it's usually with a bit of a whimper with the performer and the producers and the audience all feeling a bit stale over this particular marriage and this particular vision of the character. And we all sort of go... Yeah, okay, this is probably the last one. You can have one more while we're in the theatre, kind of knowing you're out, aren't you? We're going to move on to someone else after this. And that kind of overshadows that particular film because we all know it's the last one. Who's next? Um, You know, sort of go back, I've I've enjoyed, you know, large parts, some more than others, of, of each of the films that Craig has done. But I just... Further to the point I just made, I just don't necessarily think he ever got the role, but in this particular film, I, I just think he does. Like, Casino Royale is a really good movie, but because it very deliberately ignores all the tenets of the franchise and the character, it's actually not a very good James Bond movie. And I understand that that's exactly what they were going for, because they were starting the character at page one, and we were picking him up. He's, he's very raw, he's got rough edges all over him, and he's sort of slowly becoming the James Bond we, we know him as, and that was that film's gimmick. But here, this feels like they get it right. This feels like he's a bit of a hybrid of that Bond, which is which is fine, the action-y Bond, which is great, and then a little bit more you know, nuance, a little bit more class, um, which again is, is what the character needs to be. And it, it all feels rather final. It all feels like a, a full stop, which is sort of unique for the character because, like I said, usually they just... Credits roll, and not long after, they get signed off, thanks for your service, and we go looking for a new James Bond. So to kind of embrace that, to send him out on a high, he he honestly couldn't have hoped, in my mind, for a better send-off. It's probably the best finale uh, any James Bond actor has ever had, and to be honest, it's going to take some topping for whoever steps into the role for however long. Another element that I loved was the cold open. Uh, it's one of the Bond film's great sort of an enduring gifts to cinema is the cold open before the credits. Um, they like to start the film with an explosion, not sometimes literally. Um, there often are fireworks and explosions, but narratively an explosion is obviously just 
a big event that just gets the plot moving, that gets the film in gear, that sets you know gets gets us some momentum, and like John Wick Three is a great example that starts with one of the most extraordinary ten or fifteen minute action sequences that actually leaves you wanting a break. So the film starts off on the positive in a positive frame of mind on the front foot, plenty of momentum behind it, and at the conclusion of that sequence the audience is actually prepared to sit down and swallow some exposition and swallow a slower pace because, you know, you just, you just want to catch your breath a bit. So the, the, the cold open here is absolutely brilliant. It, it might be one of my favourite James Bond cold opens of all time. Um, it, sometimes they influence the plot. Sometimes they're a standalone mission. Here it influences the plot. It's in two parts. You get a bit of a flashback of Leia Seydoux's character, uh, Madeline Swan, as a young girl. That goes into sort of quasi-present day. Had a fantastic sequence in Matera in Italy. Um, just, I really can't speak highly enough of it. The DB5 is the best it's ever been. The gadgets on it are the best they've ever been. It's a fantastic chase uh, sequence throughout the this, this Italian uh, town. Um, it just ticks every box it needs to. The environment, which is always a very important character in these Bond films is exactly what it needs to be. It's a sweeping romantic postcard that establishes these two characters and where they are. Wonderful spectacle, fantastic setup and consequences at the end as we go into the Bond song, which is great. It's absolutely first rate. Can't speak highly of it, uh, more highly of it. Um, the supporting cast, um, again, I, I'm not sure I can think of a Bond film in which the supporting players were as good as they are in this. Uh, Anna de Armas uh, steals the show as Paloma who's a new CIA agent who Bond teams up with for a sequence in Cuba. Um, The Cuban sequence is arguably the highlight of the film. Um, And to be honest with you, up until that sequence, once we leave there and the film sort of straightens up and gets into the next act, it's three body lengths ahead of the world record line for James Bond films. It's absolutely magnificent. Uh, And the sequence that comes comes to a head at that particular point of the film uh, is largely to do with um, Paloma, the character, and how um, uh, Anna Armas plays her. She's sort of a new age Bond girl. She's she's feisty and she's capable and she's quirky and she's she's absolutely superb. Interestingly, um, what the sequence does really well is it, it is establishes this new world. It establishes the threat. We lose some friends. We make some allies. And out of it, I actually couldn't help just as a sidebar. I thought to myself watching it, and, and if you see the film, do get in touch and you can give me your thoughts on this. There's a moment in the next scene, which once again sets up the rest of the movie, where there's a, a bit of a twist. And I thought to myself, I reckon Paloma might have been killed in a particular draft of the film. Films these days are pretty fluid. With You can change a lot very quickly just owing to the technology available to you. Because she's so good... There's an element of me that wonders if they put the film together and went, we probably shouldn't kill this character. She could exist in an Amazon show. She could get her own spin-off. Don't kill her, because if we kill her, we can't use her again. Just, yeah, just, just have her exit stage left, and that's her little part of the movie done. She steals the show, but let's just have her in our back pockets in case we want her and need her again for something else down the line. And then, interestingly, actually, um, she's being followed if rumours online are to be believed to lead up a film called Ballerina which is in the John Wick universe it's a spin-off of John Wick and on the back of this you can see why because um, sensational really really good absolutely brilliant from her uh, Leia Seydoux 
as Madeline Swan, absolutely terrific. Much better chem- uh, chemistry between her and Bond than we saw in Skyfall. She's the heart of the film. Um, sometimes that can be a thankless task. It can be a difficult task. Um, but she's absolutely outstanding and, and sort of quickly casts herself as, as one of the better Bond love interests um, that we've seen. There may be some misgivings after Skyfall about that, but she puts all those to bed. She's uh, really, really good in this. The big twist, which once again I won't give away, but the big twist, I loved it. I thought the characters had earned that. I thought it worked brilliantly. I thought it added to the stakes. It added to the richness of their relationship. Um, It's something we haven't seen before in a Bond film. It doesn't always work when films try to do this, when they inject this particular plot element. It doesn't always go in their favour. In fact, it, it generally fails most of the time. But here, given where the characters are, where they are in their arc, where they need to be in their arc, and what we need to get out of it, um, I think it's absolutely, I think it's great. I think it works perfectly. Um, MI6 and the CIA played as a team a little bit more and, and far more active as a team than they have been in the past. From Q to Moneypenny to Tanner, Felix and Paloma, obviously M involved as well, all very good, all bounce off each other and utilise each other uh, in service of the plot really, really well, function together, like I said, as a team. Um, Nomi, who's the, the new 007 who has replaced Bond after his retirement, played by Lashana Lynch. Again, really good. Yeah, really good. Um, both she and Paloma are, like I said earlier, you know, feisty, dynamic, um, and really embrace the roles and do a great job. She's um, she's really good. She's There was no nerves on my part about her not being good or otherwise. Or I'm always more interested in how they fit into the plot of the movie, how do they service the plot of the movie, the drama, the action, etc. And she ticks all those boxes. She's really, really good. It'll be interesting to see in the new next continuity, what happens with that character? Does she spin off into her own continuity? How does that work? Um, I think there would be plans in place. It's just a matter of waiting to see what they are. Obviously, every Bond film has the threat um, or the stakes. Uh, and in this one, again, that's a big tick from me. Um, the threat is essentially split into two parts, one of them big, the big world-ending element, and then the small personal stakes. Um I mentioned earlier that the idea of this virus being out of control, designed in a lab and getting loose is is a bit uh, in this current age, but uh, I might have mentioned earlier it's also brilliantly sort of in the spirit of the big, silly, goofy Bond bad guys, you know, aiming for world domination, and, and sometimes you just have to give yourself to that. Um, and sometimes it doesn't quite work, but then sometimes in this case I think it's just silly enough, played just straight enough, and it works out really well. But for me, the personal stakes are what defined this bond and have defined this bond since Casino Royale and here they all come to a crescendo in a really meaningful well done way you had Vespa in Casino Royale you had Judy Dench's M in Skyfall you had Blofeld in their connection in Spectre you got Madeline in this and largely they're all tied together you know from Mr. White um, to Saffin and you know on Saffin actually you don't see him until like an hour and 15 minutes into the film and that's absolutely fine because this isn't the villain's movie. So long, whether it be a comic book movie or a James Bond film, the meaty role is the villain. The fun role is the villain. Bond is sort of the straight man. He just he becomes the set at different times and the villain is allowed to be a zany and crazy and really get all the eyeballs and the plaudits and, and all, the, the, um, all the credit, to be honest. But that's not what this film's about. That's not really what any of these Craig Bonds have been about. He's been kind of the main character in all of them. They've been show stealers. 
Um, Mads Mikkelsen was great as Le Chief. Obviously, uh, Javier Bardem was fantastic as Silva. But they're, they're, they're Bond films, and Bond is the central character. It's not like, as can occasionally happen in those comic book movies, Batman's been guilty of this, where the villains sort of steal the show, and, and they're, they're, the, you know, they're the protagonist, um, which isn't really in service of the film, ultimately. It doesn't really help the main character in their next outing. So I think that's something these Bond films have gotten right and done it really well. Um, and Saffin's, look, he's a, he's a good villain. He's got a suitably fiendish plot. He's well enough realised. But like I said, he's not the star of the film. He doesn't need to be the star of the film. Um, but he's, he's quite strong. Hans Zimmer's score is another thing I really, really liked. Um, and he actually throws up potentially my favourite piece of music we've seen in a Bond film um, since a, a piece called Run, Shoot and Jump which was uh, composed by French composer Eric Serra for Goldeneye, um, which is actually an interesting little diversion, again, that that was sort of the moment Bond became this modern action man. But um, I just want to play, actually, a segment. There's a there's a fantastic piece of music which we'll call the action motif, and it's you know, inescapably, it's James Bond. You can't possibly think of it as anything others, but it's a really fantastic piece of Bond musical score, sort of its DNA, distilled in a fun fresh new way and and Zimmer uses it in uh, the opening sequence um, when they're in Matera he uses it in the Cuban sequence and he uses it obviously at the uh, climax of the film Um, and as I said it's sort of the action motif we'll play just a bit of it this is the I love this piece of music it's just to be honest a short um, excuse to listen to it So that rears its head whenever Bond is sort of in Bond mode, um, which is great. That's a sort of fantastic, uh, punchy piece of music, which is really good. And it actually reminded me, um, I was sitting there, I was thinking to myself, why do I like this so much? Why do I like this piece of music so much? And then about 12 hours later, I realised why, because it sounds a bit like this. suppose ultimately if you're going to steal from anyone steal from yourself that's uh Hans Zimmer's work on Sherlock Holmes A Game of Shadows um used in the sequence where they're escaping from um Moriarty's clutches and they're running through the woods um just before they fire the big sort of big uh, what's a big gun little Hansel at them but it's a very similar piece of music as I'm sure you can tell um I love that back in 2011 I think when that film was released so 10 odd years later to have something so similar um the director probably said just something like that'll do and he came up with something very much like that and it works absolutely perfectly the score itself in totality sometimes i feel like zimmer can being you know having a pop background he kind of writes singles if, if that makes sense and in his score his scores are defined by one standout piece of music as opposed to a story told across the entire score you've got there's a track called supermarine in dunkirk 
you know, time from inception gets a lot of play. And then there's one called um, No Time for Caution. And the other one, I think, is Stay from Interstellar. And they're all standout pieces of music, but the whole score becomes defined by that one piece of music as opposed to being a complete score. Um, I thought this was a really strong score. I think in totality, I thought it was really well put together. Um, I think it serves the film better than some of his other scores serve some of his other films, um, which was great. So the score gets a big tick for me. And just lastly too, actually, just in terms of what I really liked, just the nods. I liked all the little nods. In a lot of ways, it's it's a love letter in the best way to James Bond. It's a kind of greatest hits. It's not the end of the line. They'll reboot this character. But as film 25, it's sort of a celebration of films 1 through 24. You know, all the best bits, all the silly bits, all the fun bits, all the serious bits. A lot of it gets a nod. And there's nothing wrong with fan service when you do it well and when you do it sort of obviously enough but not so obvious that it's on the nose. Um you know, all the time in the world is obviously a big theme of this from uh, Honor Majesty's Secret Service. You've got Timothy Dalton's V8 Vantage gets a go. The DB5, like I mentioned earlier, it's never been utilised better. Uh, at one point in time, he walks past Money Penny's desk and he throws something in the bin, which is a callback to him throwing his hat on the hat rack. You've got classic Ken Adam production design, who was the, the first production designer on the series and really did a mountain of work to separate Bond from films at that time pretty much every film of that time and, and his work was you know transformative and he gets a nod um really lovingly in this which is excellent there's an action sequence towards the end of the film where he's working his way up a flight of stairs i, I might be reading too much into it but he's taking on sort of a raft of villains and i thought is this a nice bookend to the great scene in casino royale where he's fighting you know that guy in the stairwell at sort of his first big drag him out crazy fight when he just survives by the skin of his teeth it's this battle to the death and in this one five films four films later is the finished article you know he's 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 got a firefight on the stairwell against dozens of guys and he's fighting his way through it he's he's going up the stairs and that he's going down the stairs nice symbolism and a nice way to invert you know something and and show the audience what the growth is in again not an obvious way but in a way that I think was really, really fun and really, really well done. Um, and the way the scene's executed as well, you know, the Cuban scene's great, the stairwell scene's great, the opening um, town square sequence in Matura is outstanding. So that was really good. In terms of what I didn't like, and this isn't so much what I didn't like, but maybe the film was so overstuffed. Maybe they were a bit chastened by you know what happened last outing with Oberhauser and um, Blofeld and everyone knowing that he was Blofeld and they were trying to keep the secret but everyone picked it and everyone knew that he's going to have the big turnaround and reveal. And he, Safin, played by Rami Malek, to my mind, should have been Dr. No. There's so many nods to Dr. No. The credits um, have this very classic graphical callback. There's a bit of the suits, you know, the sort of nuclear suit things. There's his lair. There's the loca- location of the, the first act, which is basically Crab Key. Um, just have him be a Spectre agent who, after the fall of Blofeld or the capture of Blofeld, is warring with the other lieutenants within Spectre, number three, number five, number seven, and he hatches a plan to get rid of them. You know, you've got these characters sitting there. You've got so many of these wonderful characters of which Dr. No is one. Just bring him back. Just, you know, take the opportunity to use these guys in a fun way. You know, that film's 59 years old. Just have him be Dr. No. And... I don't think the audience would care because it'd be a very different Doctor No 
than the one we saw. You could build on him, you could flesh him out, you could sort of lean right into that, the, the politics with Inspector. Um, yeah, I just thought, and I wondered again, like the Paloma thing, I wondered, there was all these rumours in the build-up to the film being released that um, he was Dr. No. There was all these little tips and nods as maybe he's Dr. No, lines of dialogue, set design, some promotional photos, weren't showing his hands, etc., etc. And I wonder if they just thought, ah, oh, people have guessed it. They've guessed that he's Dr. No. Oh, okay, well, and then out of spite, maybe they changed it. That might sound stupid, but when you've got 18 months sitting on a film and you're working on it and recutting it and you can go back and do reshoots and the like, you've got plenty of time to think about it and maybe you get scared that, geez, people have guessed the twist. Maybe it'll be stale by the time they see it. So we change it up a bit. I don't know. But like I said, that would have been a nice little thing. I would have loved for that to have happened. I don't know why they don't do it a little bit more often. They bring back so many other plot elements. Um, something like that's not going to hurt and I think would be really well appreciated by the fan base. Um, just in terms of final thoughts, I suppose, on No Time to Die, wrapping it all up, Craig goes out on a high. Absolutely no question. He goes out on a massive high and the franchise will regenerate as it always does with a new face in front of the lens whenever that's announced and whenever that happens and the excitement as it always is for every new James Bond film and new James Bond actor will be what it is um, when that happens um, and we all obviously look forward to what that'll be, what that'll look like, what time, there's a bit of talk it might be in the 60s, what that looks like is great but in terms of this particular film, two massive thumbs up, um, I, I can't stress it enough, I, I had misgivings um, some of them unfair, some of them perhaps a little bit naive, but there were, was a worry that, okay, we're going out, how are we going to go out, and oh, okay, we've heard this happens and that happens, Geez, I don't like the sound of that. Oh, I could not be happier with what they've produced. Um, I think it's a really strong entry in its own way and on its own merits. When you couple it as the conclusion of a five-film arc, I think it wraps things up better than we could have expected it would, and I think we, we sort of watch the credits roll um, satisfied, which is, is really an important thing when you have a character as tenured as this, where things can go wrong and films can go bad and it can lose its way, for it to stick the landing like it did is um, is really, really pleasing. So uh, it's obviously in cinemas now in Australia. You can go and see it now. I really, really strongly recommend that you do. I also recommend that you give yourself a bit of a refresher on Craig's journey as James Bond to this point in time uh, before you go and see it because it'll all sort of tie into each other and make a bit more sense if you do. If nothing else, you probably should watch or re-watch Spectre uh, before you see it. I think that'll certainly help with a bit of the context clues and, and how it's all structured and how it all plays out. So, as I said, loved it, really enjoyed it. Um, so pleased with, with what we've ended up seeing, having had to wait so long to see it. Um, if you do see it, if you are going to see it, uh, once you get it, um, definitely get in touch, let me know what you think. I'd love to have a chat about it. Uh, and also, if you like this, if you like this sort of longer form kind of solo thing as well, um, we won't make a habit of doing it, but I kind of wanted to do a longer form deep dive on, like I said, something that's really, really uh, close to my heart and something that I enjoy you know, so thoroughly. So thanks so much for tuning in and listening. Uh, look forward to hearing any feedback you might want to give me and uh, we'll hopefully have your ears in a couple of weeks' time for a new episode of the weekly watch list. Thank you very much. <laughs>